0: So we've been in this section uh, uh, of Matthew for quite some time, this section about revelation, a revelation of who Jesus is. And over the past two weeks, and this is now the third week, we've been at the apex of that section, a a piece where we've finally seen, who is Jesus? We've had that question that has been, been plaguing us, if you will, all through Matthew, who is this man That even the winds and the waves obey him. And we saw two weeks ago, Peter makes the great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Last week we saw how him being the Christ, God's living son, reflects to us. We, as his followers, follow him on this road to the cross. And today we're going to not just hear a confession, we're going to see a confirmation what we heard, confessed from Peter's mouth, we're going to, in a sense, see today in the transfiguration that Jesus is the Christ, the glorious Son of God, and we're going to have a confirmation from two very important Old Testament figures, and then, to kind of be the ultimate trump card, the Father. God himself is going to come and affirm what Peter confessed two weeks ago. And, and we talked two weeks ago about, about how Matthew is constantly trying to show us all of the Old Testament arrows are pointing to this man. We've seen this throughout the years as we've been walking through. Matthew's constantly stopping and saying, he did this to fulfill what the prophet said. That prophet was pointing to Jesus. All of those promises were pointing to Jesus. And we saw two weeks ago, that is what the whole Bible has been anticipating. And today we're going to see Matthew has just filled this passage with Old Testament imagery. And so have your, have your uh, Old Testament... Metal detectors? I didn't think of a good analogy. Uh, ready, because we're gonna, I'm going to stop us and we're going to see. Keep your eyes peeled for Old Testament references because Matthew, in writing this this way, wants you thinking about certain important key Old Testament events as we look at what is happening here on this mountain with Jesus and Peter, James, and John. So we'll look at four things today. Jesus' glory, the Father's word, the disciples' blind understanding, chosen those words carefully, and our sight by faith. Okay, Jesus' glory, the Father's word, the disciples' blind understanding, and our sight by faith. So let's look at the first, Jesus' glory. Look at verse 1. After and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, so, so Matthew, in, in writing those first four words, after six days, wants you to see this story is very, very closely connected to the past two weeks. Two weeks ago, the great confession started this great shift in Matthew, and we're still kind of in the midst of that great shift. He wants you thinking very closely about what we've been talking about. Who Jesus is, that's been revealed, and there's been this misunderstanding. You'll remember, Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, yes, and I'm going to go and be killed and be raised. And Peter says, whoa, uh, no, that's not what's going to happen. And Jesus calls him Satan. You know you know the story. Uh, And so there was this great confession and then this great misunderstanding, and we're still in the midst of that context. Six days, after that, okay, the scene happens. So what's happening here is Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the big three, if you will, up a mountain. He's got his 12 disciples, and we'll see as Matthew continues, there's certain situations where Jesus takes these three men uh, to, to a more kind of intimate event, if you will. We'll see this in the garden when he goes to pray. He's, he's peeling off Peter, James, And John, and he does it here in this passage, and they go up, notice, they go up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, so here's your first Old Testament, you know, alarm bell. Anytime you see throughout the scriptures something happen where a human goes up a high mountain, there's almost always a great revelation that comes. Mountains in the scriptures are this place of great revelation. Even when they build an altar, you see that all throughout, uh, someone builds an altar and sacrifices, that's a way of kind of building a mini mountain, if you will. And so, perhaps most famously, we see Moses in Exodus after Israel uh, is uh, delivered from slavery in Egypt. Where do they stop for a year? Mount Sinai. And you know, the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they're parked in front of a mountain where God's glory descends in a cloud. Moses goes up a mountain to talk with God, to establish the covenant with Israel, to bring down the laws. Here's what God uh, says to us and we obey. And Matthew is being very intentional. He's not wasting words. He's not just giving you geographical information for fun. Matthew wants your mind thinking Sinai because we're gonna see a lot more imagery than just going up a high mountain, but he wants you, in a sense, anticipating a great revelation. Just like at Sinai, we got this great revelation of God's character in Exodus 34. We got this great revelation of the 10 commandments, of his law for the people, this great covenant. Matthew wants you thinking, oh, they're going up a mountain, what's gonna happen? What's going to be revealed this time? So they go up the mountain and then we see what happens in verse 2 and he Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light so they're going up a mountain and all of a sudden Jesus becomes transfigured before them so what's what's happening here I imagine we're mostly, most of us are, at least have heard of this story, but few of us know, like, oh yeah, I know what's, what's going on there. And in a sense, it's almost too wonderful for words. There's just this sense of, as long as Peter, James, and John have known Jesus, they've seen a Jewish rabbi, they've seen a 30 ish year old man. And here on the top of the mountain, for a second, the curtain is peeled back, and they see what was confessed. They see the eternal, glorious king of the universe. They've come to realize he's the Christ, but they've only ever seen him as a, just another Jewish man. And here for a second, they see the son of the living God. There's a wonderful line in Charles Wesley's very famous Christian or, uh, well, Christian Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. And so on this mountain, what has been veiled in flesh up to this point is peeled back and they see, Peter, James, and John see the shining face of the God of the universe, the light of the world is seen in all of his shining glory. That's what's happening here. That's what Peter, James, and John are getting to see. They're getting a glimpse of glory. Remember, with the great confession two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ. I'm the son of the living God, and I'm going to die. But on the third day, I'm going to be raised. And we talked about how There is glory on the other side of suffering. And that's what the disciples are wrestling with. Yes, you're the Christ, but shouldn't that mean just a great life for us? You deliver us from all of our enemies, and Jesus says, yes, but not the way you're expecting. I'm going to bring life, but it's going to be through death. Glory is going to come, but it's not through just going in." wiping Rome off the map and putting us on top of the world. Glory is going to come through suffering. And here the disciples who have been wrestling with this are getting a glimpse of that glory that is to come. That's what's happening. Now, that's what's happening on the surface. But Matthew here, writing this for you, has two very, very, very huge things he wants you to see about Jesus as he's being Transfigured. Again, we've been talking about how the whole Old Testament is pointing to him. And Matthew here is going to show us two things that just further screams the point that everything from Genesis 1 till now has been pointing to this revelation that we're seeing on the mountain, that Jesus is the climax of all the scriptures up to this point. So the first thing, let's look at how, how did Matthew describes the transfiguration. Again, the the gospel writers are not just writing down what they can remember so there's some sort of historical report. They are picking each and every word very intentionally. So let's look at how Matthew describes in verse 2. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. Okay, Old Testament antenna, metal detector, whatever you want to go with. Flings up. Okay, so they're on a high mountain. Men have descended up a mountain. And all of a sudden, there's a face that is shining. Anybody know what that sounds like? Have we heard that before? Moses. It's exactly right. Moses in Exodus 34 goes up, has this wonderful revelation of God's character. God passes before him and declares His name: "I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love." And when Moses comes down the mountain, kind of unbeknownst to him, what's his his face is shining. In fact, it's shining so brightly that uh, the people of Israel ask him to put a veil over his face, because it's painful to look at. The glory of God is reflecting off of his face. That Matthew wants you thinking about that as you're reading this, but notice, there's something deeper happening here. because Jesus' glory, Jesus' shining face, is not a reflective glory. Jesus is not being the moon here. Jesus' shining glory, beaming from his wonderful face, is intrinsic to him. It's natural to him. He is not like Moses, where he's just absorbed glory from out there, and it's just reflecting, rather, the glory that is coming from Jesus is from within. So what does Matthew want you to see here? Matthew is showing you Jesus here is not just another Moses. This is not just a repeated event. In fact, somebody far greater is shining before you. All throughout the Old Testament, God's glory is directly tied to God's face. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. His glory is tied to his face. In fact, the greatest blessing you could receive in the Old Testament was God's face shining upon you. We see this in Numbers. Aaron, the great high priest, would give this blessing to the people of Israel. He would say this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So God's glory was where God's face shines, and that was considered where the blessing is. The Lord make his face to shine upon you as a way of saying the Lord pour out his wonderful blessing on you. We see something similar in Psalm 21 where the psalmist says, you have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. What's the psalmist after? He's after blessing. He wants to see God's face. He wants to see God's glory. His face is where the glory is and therefore where the blessing of God is. That's all throughout the Old Testament. But there's a a big problem in the scriptures. There's a big problem in the Old Testament, and it's this. God's face is so glorious that no man can look on it and live. If you actually were to see the face of God... If you actually were to stand before the glory of God, you would die. And there is, as we're talking about Moses, this story where he goes up into the presence of God. Where Notice what Moses says. We have it for you there. Exodus 33. And Moses said, this is when Moses is on the mountain in the presence of the living God. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, God said, I will make my, my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. But, he said, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. So notice two things. Notice the connection between glory and face. Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my face. And then notice, he actually can't. You can't see my face and live. And in the story, God passes before Moses. Moses doesn't see his face. and, And the Lord just tells, declares what his character is like. That's where we get the merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So with that understanding, that's God's glory shining from his face where God's blessing is. But the people couldn't stand directly underneath it or else they would die. With all that Old Testament imagery, All that Old Testament understanding in the background. Here's where Matthew wants you to be blown away by what's happening. Jesus' glory here, his shining face, is not reflective. It's intrinsic. It's it's coming from him. And we've seen he's been revealed as God's son. And so now Matthew is showing us what that means. When you see Jesus' glory, you see the glory of God. When you see the shining face of God's Son, you are seeing what Moses was told you cannot see and live. When the Son of God, when this 30-year-old rabbi's face begins to shine, Peter, James, and John are getting to see what no man has ever seen. They are getting to sit under the blessing of that has been the greatest longing of every human heart in the scriptures up to this point. They see the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ, we see the shining glory of God. Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. There's this funny scene in John 14 where Jesus is it's called the upper room discourse from John 14 to John 17 where we have this big uh, scene where Jesus is with his disciples having the last supper. And this really long conversation is where he washes their feet in John 13 and ends in the high priestly prayer in John 17. So he's just preparing them because he's about to go to the cross that night. He's going to be arrested that night. And he says, he has this conversation with Philip. He tells Philip, or he's talking to the disciples, If you had known me you would have known my father also. From now now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it will be enough for us. What's Philip asking? I want to know, I want to see what Moses asked for. You're saying I get to see the father if we know you? Okay, I get the chance. Moses got told no, I get to say yes. Can you show us the father, Jesus? And how does Jesus reply? Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see what he's saying? When you look upon my shining face, you see the shining glory of God. Or perhaps one of my favorite passages in the scriptures Paul talking to the Corinthians for God who said let light shine out of darkness the God who said let there be light has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where in the face of Jesus Christ where is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Of God, the glory that's too wonderful for Moses, the glory that is the ultimate blessing of every human heart in the face of Jesus Christ, the infinitely beautiful glory of God, the blessing for the nations is here in Jesus' shining face. Peter, James, and John are getting to see it. Now, I'm tempted to pray and close because there's enough there to just last you a lifetime, but Matthew's nowhere near done, okay? So let's continue on with just Matthew saturating us with Old Testament imagery of just who this man, Jesus, is. He's the radiance of the glory of God. His shining face is where God's glory ultimately shines. And then the second thing we see, look at verse three. As Jesus is being transfigured, and behold, there appeared to them Moses, And Elijah talking with him. So Jesus is being transfigured, he's shining, and then behold, Moses and Elijah actually show up. They appear there as Jesus is shining, and his clothes are radiating white light, and they're talking with Jesus. So Moses is kind of the archetype leader of Israel, and Elijah is considered kind of the archetype prophet. He didn't write a prophetic book like Jeremiah, Isaiah, but we see his ministry in First and Second Kings, and he's just kind of considered the most passionate, most powerful prophets. Right in the darkest time of Israel, he defeats all the priests of Baal. But them together is more significant than them separate because they are they're kind of a, a personal representation of the law and the prophets. So whenever you read in the New Testament, someone say the law and the prophets, that's them saying the Old Testament. The law, the first five books that Moses authored, and then the prophets kind of just means the rest. And so Moses and Elijah here are meant to represent the Old Testament. Everything up to this point, again, as we've been pointing out. And so they show up and notice what doesn't happen. Jesus isn't in awe of them and he's not picking their brains. They're talking to him because they're not in his class. Their forerunners. Their whole lives have been meaning to point to him. We actually don't get what the conversation is about in this. And Matthew, Luke tells us they speak to him about his upcoming exodus, the great deliverance that he's going to bring for the people. But this is another way of Matthew saying, all the arrows are pointing to Jesus. He must increase. Everybody else in the entire world must decrease. They are shadows. He is... The substance. So Matthew wants you just blown away in this transfiguration. It's not just a cool Jesus light show. He wants you blown away with this idea that the one that all of human history has been waiting for is here. And he's not just here to pay for your penalty. Rather, in his face is the glorious glory of God. That's what's happening here. In the transfiguration, his shining face and then just the whole Bible pointing to him in Moses and Elijah. So that's Jesus' glory. The next thing we see is the Father's word. So there's just this incredible thing happening. Jesus is being transfigured. Moses and Elijah are there. The glory of God is shining through Jesus' face. And then, like most awesome things, Peter ruins it. Peter jumps in. Verse 4. And Peter said, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make us three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So literally, while, while this otherworldly thing is happening, while this literally glorious, wonderful thing is happening, Peter blurts out, man, this is awesome. Should I build everyone some tents? Right? Right? Uh, And so a lot of ink has been spilled as to, like, what is he really asking? Is he wanting to keep the vision happening? Is he trying to pin them down to the earth so that they can never leave? But Luke tells us pretty explicitly he doesn't know what he's saying. He is just blurting stuff out. He's he's kind of out of his mind, and so he's probably just overwhelmed and thinks he needs to talk, despite what happens 100% of the time when he talks. Uh, And so he just blurts something out. So the point is he's, he's misunderstanding. I think it's a bit... Missing the point if we just try and diagnose what's the nature of what he's saying. He blurted something out in order to say something and then while he is talking. So the last time he blurted something out in the Great Confession, Jesus rebuked him and called him Satan. Uh, Not great. And this time, watch what happens. So he's talking. He's literally mid-sentence. Verse five. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Again, Old Testament antennae go up. They're on a mountain. There's a shining face. Now there's a great glorious cloud that has descended. Again, what are we thinking about? Sinai. Every verse, Matthew just keeps saturating us with Old Testament imagery. There's a cloud that descends, there's a voice that comes from the cloud, and there's terror as a result. We've seen this movie before, right, in Exodus. So the father speaks out from the cloud, just like he did with Moses, and what does he say? First notice he does have to interrupt Peter. Peter's mid, you know, blabbering, and God tells him, interrupts him. And then second, he, what he says first is he declares his delight in his son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so we're not just getting a glimpse of Jesus' glory here. We're getting a glimpse at the Trinitarian love that the Father has been pouring out on the Son for all of eternity. By whom I take great pleasure is literally what he is saying. So we've heard this before. Where is the other place we heard this? Baptism, yeah. We saw this when Jesus, right before uh, his ministry begins, Jesus goes and he's baptized by John the Baptist. The heavens are torn open. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove and a voice comes out from the heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And so right at the beginning, what's happening there is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right at the beginning of his mission, the father gives this great affirmation of his delight in his son. And here, notice, where are we in the context? Right after that mission has been clarified, this is a mission not just to heal people and to preach incredible sermons. This is a mission to death. This is a mission that ends in gruesome murder, in terrible death. And the Father again is affirming, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. As Peter and the disciples are saying, don't go to the cross That is not what the Messiah is supposed to do. That's wrong. The Father is saying, go to the cross. I am well pleased in your mission to the cross. The Father affirms him, gives his great delight, and then we have this added piece, something that the Father says that he didn't say at Jesus' baptism in verse 5. Listen to him. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased Listen to him. So the father isn't just affirming his love for Jesus. He's further affirming what he says, I say. He is my word. So again, think about all this Old Testament imagery. They're on a mountain. There's a cloud. There's someone hearing from God. And what happens in Exodus? Moses hears from God and he takes God's word down the mountain, God's law, the Ten Commandments, and then the Levitical law and the New Covenant. And what's happening here? They're on a mountain, a cloud is descending, and the Father is speaking his word, except this time it's not written on tablets of stone. What is God's word? His Son. Listen to him. He is only doing what I have told him to do. We've seen Jesus say other places, I only do what I, what I see the Father doing. I only speak what I see or hear the Father saying. So while the disciples are doubting his words, the Father is saying, his words are my words. He is my perfect word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word came down. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. This is two verses earlier than a passage that we read earlier. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In the Old Testament, you want to hear from God, you need a prophet. Either Moses to go up the mountain and bring you down written things, or Isaiah to say, thus says the Lord, or Elijah to go and say, thus says the Lord. You need a prophet. That's how God communicated to his People, verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed as the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. So on Mount Sinai, God is saying, I'm establishing this covenant with you, Israel. Here's my law, here's the stipulations, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And here on this mountain, God is saying, here's my eternal covenant with you, O people of God, my son, listen to him, behold his wonderful glory. You want to see my glory, the father says, you want to see what Moses was asking for, look at his face, and you want to hear my perfect word, listen to him. You see what I mean by the whole Old Testament is pointing to the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. You want to see the glory of God, look at the beaming face of Jesus Christ. You want to hear the perfect word of God, look at and listen to the Son of the living God, Jesus. The Father descends, declares his delight, declares the Son as his eternal word, and the disciples are pinned to the ground in absolute terror. We see next verse 7. But Jesus came, as Peter, James, and John are eating dirt, terrified. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So there's this constant misunderstanding and the disciples are now cowering in fear and here we see Jesus not show up and say you believe me now? Any other questions about what I'm supposed to do now that I've got Moses, Elijah and God kind of affirming my mission? What does your gentle and lowly Savior do? He goes and he puts his hand on the back of his disciples and says don't fear. Get up. Again Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness. He holds the universe in his hands, every star is in his palm, yet he lets children run into his arms. Who is like this man? No one. Even in the moments of the disciples' greatest ignorance, he is so gentle and so lowly and so comforting and so patient, just like he is with you when you're ignorant. And foolish and blab on out of place. He does not roll his eyes. The glorious king of the universe whose face is beaming, whose face shines brighter than every star in the sky, comes low to comfort his people. And he says, get up, rise, don't be afraid. And they lift their eyes and they only see Jesus. The father's gone, Moses and Elijah are gone. And they should know don't think they do, but they should know, as they only see Jesus, he's all they need. They want to see the Father, they look at him. They want to see who Moses and Elijah were all about, they look at him. And so they see Jesus. So we see Jesus' glory, we see the Father's word, and next we're going to see, this, this next paragraph, as Jesus and the big three, Peter, James, and John, are walking down the mountain, they're just going to kind of debrief what's just happened here. So let's look at this next section, which I've called the disciples' blind understanding. Blind understanding. You'll see what I mean in just a second. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain. Okay, so the revelation has happened. Now they're coming down. Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? <sighs> okay. Uh, verse 11. And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist, okay? So they're walking down the mountain, and Jesus tells the disciples, don't tell anybody what you just saw. Keep your mouth quiet until I'm raised from the dead. And now, by now, you, you should know why he's giving these sorts of commands, right? People are constantly misunderstanding who he is, and if you misunderstand who Jesus is, and then you give a witness about him, you tell others about him, you're going to, by that very nature, spread a false witness, My uncle used to tell me, every heresy comes down to who is Jesus. If you get that question wrong, it doesn't matter what else you get right. Okay, and so the disciples have misunderstood. We saw that dramatically with Peter. There's still this misunderstanding going on. It doesn't seem like they're really clicking, right? No light bulbs have gone off yet. And so Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody this until I'm raised from the dead. Keep quiet until after the resurrection. And their response is a little strange. Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? So we'll talk about it in a second if this is the question they should be asking. We'll talk about that in a second. But let's unpack this actual question first. So they asked Jesus basically about a teaching of the scribes, the, the Jewish teachers of the day who were teaching before the great day of the Lord, before the Messiah comes, Elijah has to come first. And we actually looked at this passage a few weeks ago, but they're getting that from Malachi. Uh, Chapter four, verse five, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Okay, so before the Messiah comes, Elijah has to come first. That was a teaching of the scribes because the scribes knew their Bible, right? They knew uh, Malachi 4. So there's debate again on why the disciples are asking this question. Some think because they just saw Elijah, they're like, "Oh yeah, what about that? You know, Malachi 4 passage. Is that what we just saw? Was that that?" Um, some people think that they're actually beginning to grasp uh, Jesus is the Messiah. Wait, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? I don't think Elijah has come first. And so they're just kind of wrestling with it. Uh, but again, it could be kind of any of these, regardless. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, detract from the main point of what's happening here. So they ask that question, and Jesus answers them. And what he says is, Elijah has come. The scribes' teaching is right, because they know their Bible. But ironically, when Elijah actually showed up, they missed him. Because Elijah was John the Baptist. Uh, And Jesus essentially saying here, Malachi isn't saying Elijah the man, but rather a prophet like Elijah. Someone in the steps of Elijah is going to come. Now, was there somebody who came and was wearing camel's hair like Elijah did, and was uh, uh, opposing the Jewish leaders of the day like Elijah did, and was turning the nation back to God, preparing the way for the Messiah like Elijah did? Yeah. It's one of the first guys we saw in Matthew, John the Baptist. And the disciples get that kind of at the end. So Jesus is saying, yeah, Elijah has come, and ironically, they missed him. He was they are right about the teaching, but when he showed up, they were blind. And then Jesus goes on to say, and if they were blind to the forerunner of the Messiah, and he suffered at their hands, and he was eventually killed, Then for the Messiah, they will certainly be blind to the Messiah, and he will certainly suffer at their hands and be killed. Though the religious leaders knew Malachi 4, they were blind to who Malachi 4 was talking about. In the same way, the religious leaders have their Old Testament essentially memorized. Every Pharisee that's the bad guy of the New Testament knows the Old Testament better than me and maybe better than everybody in this room combined. I'm not exaggerating. They probably had it memorized They know Genesis 3.15, someone's going to come and they're going to crush the head of the serpent. They know Genesis 12, someone's going to come from Abraham's line who's going to bless the nations. They know 2 Samuel 7, one day one of David's sons will show up and he will reign forever in glory. They know Isaiah 53, he's going to be wounded for our transgressions and he's going to be crushed for our iniquities. They know Deuteronomy 18, that one day a prophet's going to come greater than Moses. And yet when he shows up, they will be blind to him. They will miss his glory. And when you're blind to Jesus' glory, he will be mistreated. He will be slandered. He will be mocked. He will be killed, just like Elijah was. So Jesus unpacks that. And then we see this kind of half-encouraging thing from the disciples in verse 13. Then the disciples understood, right? A rare sentence in the New Testament. The disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. So they understand, but do they really understand? I think they are very blind to what is happening here. Notice a couple things. One, they're coming down the mountain. They've just quite literally seen the most glorious thing that human eyes can behold. What would be the question you ask? Hey, wow, can we talk about that? Or what did, the, the Father, can you give us a peek into the Trinitarian eternal relationship? I mean, any of that stuff. Not some random teaching about the scribes. But that is what they ask. Do they ask anything about the glory that they've just been able to behold in the face of Jesus Christ? No. They want to know, can you give us some facts? And Can you just give us a little understanding? I have this biblical interpretation question. They're totally off and what they should be asking they are totally blind to the things that matter. Their question isn't a bad question, it's just infinitely down the list of the questions that they should be asking. And then second, notice, not only do they basically ignore the transfiguration in their mountain debrief. In this conversation, in this paragraph, notice 100% of the things about Jesus just totally go over their heads. Number one, they again miss the resurrection. Jesus says, don't tell anybody this vision until the son of man, me, uh, until I'm raised from the dead. And they don't say, hey, you've mentioned that before. Can you talk to me about that? You're gonna be killed, you're gonna be raised from the dead? I don't, they just don't even respond to it. Totally ignore the resurrection, which is decently important. And then secondly, when Jesus talks about John the Baptist, their question, and then totally reorients the story to himself. Yes, Elijah showed up, John the Baptist, and he suffered and was killed, so will I. They say, cool, so it is John the Baptist, got it. Like, what is going on? Sure, they understand this random question. They're still very much blind to the wonderful revelation they were just able to see. They still aren't grasping who the man standing right in front of them is, and they won't really grasp it until the resurrection. After the resurrection, we're going to start to see some light bulbs going off, which is probably why Jesus said, wait until after the resurrection, when you guys can actually understand what's going on here. We're going to see this. We're going to see them abandon him. We're going to see them constantly put their foot in their mouths because they're not getting it yet. They understand this little story about Elijah. That's great. But they're still very much blind to the glory that is standing right in front of them. So that's the passage. This incredible, wonderful, glorious passage. And I'll just confess to you, historically, I mean, I've known about the transfiguration. Where if you get told, like, key moments in Jesus' life, this is always in there. And I've always just wrestled with, like, that's great. Uh, what, what do I have to do with this? Is this just a story of, like, Jesus was glorious and just, like, the, the disciples got to see it? And it's just a story, it's an event that I get to kind of know about, right? I've always had a tough time connecting to this story in the sense of like, what are like the take-home things for me? Is this just, Jesus was beautiful and he's God's son, and maybe that's some of you, And ironically, I mean, a lot of the commentators I read, when they were getting to the, like, what's the big point? It was either simply, yeah, this is an incredible event, or this is Jesus being encouraged by the Father because his disciples probably were discouraging, or this is the disciples being encouraged by the Father because they've been doubting Jesus. And all of those things are true. But, oh my goodness, if that's where we stop, how blind we are. If we just stop at saying this was a great event, we, like the disciples in this John the Baptist Elijah conversation, are blind to the glory that's right in front of us. Because this event, this glorious transfiguration and its relation to you, I don't think can be overstated. Because what the disciples are getting to see here has everything to do with your life now And everything to do with your eternal life. We've seen today, in the Old Testament, the greatest blessing is seeing God's face. That's where his glory is. That's where your eternal blessing is. Moses, show me your glory. God says, you cannot see my face. They can't look. And we've seen Matthew showing us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we'll see as the New Testament unfolds is that when we begin... To behold the glory of Jesus, that beholding his glory is the greatest joy of your eternal life. That's the greatest joy of heaven, if you will. What makes heaven so great? Streets of gold, sure. Manson, sure. But what the New Testament would say pretty clearly is you get to see what Peter, James, and John see for all eternity. Let me show you a couple passages. John 17, again, in this upper room discourse, right at the end, Jesus has been preparing them, and then he prays this whole chapter, praying to the Father, This the most glorious prayer ever prayed. And Jesus pray, prays right at the end, kind of the crescendo of the prayer. Jesus asks the Father for something. And look at what Jesus, asking the Father, look at what he asks him. Father, I desire that they, his disciples, and you with them, he's already prayed for, his disciples and all who would believe from their witness that's you he's praying for in this moment i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world so what is jesus asking for as he's about to redeem you i want them father in heaven with me. Why? So that they can see what Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain for all eternity. That's what Jesus cares about. That's what Jesus is praying for, that you would be with him and for all eternity get to gaze at his beaming, glorious face. And we see at the very end, the last chapter of your Bible, that is what happens the days that we're still right now waiting for in Revelation 22, when the great judgment day comes and we enter into eternity with him, we see this, then the angel showed me the river of water of life Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the streets of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, and its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God, and that the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, verse 4, the great crescendo of all the great things of eternity, and they will see his face. Jesus' John 17 prayer will be answered. You will be with him and you will see his face, his glory and his name will be on their foreheads. In other words, the greatest joy of your eternal life is gazing at the beautiful beaming face of Jesus Christ. What Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of, and in fact, First John tells us that when we see his glory, when we see him in his glory, that's actually what's going to cause our glorification. First John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, Jesus appears, we shall be like him, so we will be transformed, we will look like him, no longer a progress of sanctification, we'll be glorified, why? Because we shall see him as he is. So seeing him is actually what causes our own glorification. So that's the greatest joy of your eternity. You don't like that, you're not gonna like forever, okay? Because that is what heaven is, gazing at his wonderful face. And so you might say, that's great, but what about now? Is that just something I, we just wait for that, like it's terrible now, but we'll get to gaze at his face in eternity. And John Owen, who's, uh, the most famous Puritan, I think I could say, and, and most considered to be the greatest theologian to ever write in the English language. The last book of his life, as he was dying, he wrote a book called uh, Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ, or just the glory of Christ for a more modern day title. And I love, I love uh, meeting with old saints and hearing people's final words because you just know they've lived a faithful life and they're not wasting words at the end of their life. Someone's final book, they're putting in, this is what's most important to me. And the greatest thinker of all the Puritans writes, Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ, where he says, based on John 17, the goal of the Christian life is to behold the glory of Christ. If that's what Jesus prays for, that must be the goal of the Christian life. That's what we will do for all of eternity. He says, that's why heaven is so wonderful. But, Owen says, you can actually start to do that now. You can actually behold the glory of Christ now, and you ask how, not with your physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith. We've been doing it all morning. You open his word and you see his wonderful glory with the eyes of faith. You can see his glory. You can contemplate. You can meditate on just his person, how he's gentle and lowly, how he is so infinite, yet he stoops down so low to be born in a manger. You can think about and meditate on his work in the gospel, that the perfect eternal king of the universe stepped off his heavenly throne and went to die a slave's death, humiliated on a cross for me. You can behold his glory that way with the eyes of faith, thinking about him, thinking about his person, thinking about his work in the gospel. And Owen further argues that is actually ultimately how you change now, That is actually how, not just our ultimate glorification, as we saw in 1 John 3, that's actually how you grow in sanctification. You don't grow by just trying harder or just kind of white-knuckling it. You grow ultimately by being overwhelmed by his glory and having your affections rewired. Think about patience. You don't grow in patience by just being like, okay, this is infuriating me. I'm just going to try and not blow up right now. I mean, you could try that, and I guess it's good not to blow up. But at best, that's superficial change. And that's misery, by the way. You can do that, uh, but it's not the best. Right? Owen would say, what's ultimately going to grow you in patience is when you think about your own foolishness, your own high-handed rebellion that deserves eternal punishment, and then you see Jesus Christ being so patient with you. You'll become more forgiving, not by white-knuckling and trying it. When you see, when you get a glimpse of the infinite debt you have been forgiven, you will actually begin to be transformed, and you'll be more forgiving to others. You see the difference between those two. Owen would say that's actually by beholding his glory is how we change now. You lose your love for sin. Lee talked about that this morning in theological equipping class. You lose your love for sin when you begin to see his infinitely greater loveliness by beholding that loveliness with the eyes of faith. In other words... When you see him with the eyes of faith, you are transformed. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He's not talking about eternity here. He's talking about now. How are you being transformed to look more like Jesus? By looking at Jesus. You see, the Sunday school answer is actually the right answer. Jesus. Look at him, gaze at him in wonder, listen to him, see him dying on the cross for you, see him rolling away the stone with new resurrection life as the first fruits of your resurrection life, knowing death has been defeated and you will be raised, though you will go into the ground, you will one day be raised because you are united to him. When you see that, that's actually what's going to change you. That's what's going to bring actual heart transformation. And the most incredible thing, last thing we'll talk about, is I think we all know that we've all experienced beholding something that just makes us happy, right? Your favorite meal, Cane's, if you're Lee. Uh, We've all gone to this vacation spot that just, I love it. Right? I just want to go back and I want to tell everybody about it. Well, we've all beheld a mountain range or something like that and we hang the picture on our wall or we go to a good steakhouse and then we just can't wait to go. We go make an annual pilgrimage every year. We've all known that. You behold something and it fills your heart with happiness. Here's the problem with that. The steak can't love you back. The mountain range cannot love you back. And what Jesus is showing you here, what Matthew is showing you here, is when you behold Jesus with the eyes of faith, when you look to him and put your trust in him and you give your life over to him, that same love that the father eternally has for his son that speaks from the crowd, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased is poured out on you. The father now comes to you and looks at you and says, this is my beloved son, my adopted daughter, with whom I am well pleased, by whom my heart is filled with great delight. One more passage I'll show you just to prove this again in John 17. Jesus again praying. I do not ask for these also, but also all those who would believe in me through their word, that's you, that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that two things, the world may know that you sent me, and the lo- or, and loved them even as you loved me. You see what Jesus is saying? The love the Father has for you is even as, in quantity and in quality, the same as he has for his eternal Son. When you behold him, when you look to him in faith. The stake is a one-way street. It cannot love you back. This is not a one-way street in beholding Jesus. You are not gazing at his beauty like you would at a wonderful painting. You're gazing at someone who has been gazing at you, who has had his eyes fixed on you from before the Father said, let there be light. Isn't that incredible? So let me just give you a final exhortation as we close. Look to him and listen to him. Moses, Elijah, the Father, Matthew, the whole Old Testament, the stars and the sun and the moon, creation declares his glory. They're all screaming at you, look at his wonderful beauty and live under that wonderful radiating light and listen to him. His words are always good. He's the good shepherd who knows you by name. He will never leave you. Or forsake you this is an incredible story it's not just an incredible story this is a summary of your christian life living it out under the wonderful beams of his glorious face may we do that may that not just be some sort of intellectual understanding in our minds may that be a reality that we live in may we not be blind like Peter, James, and John, to the beauty and the glory that's right in front of us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we want our eyes of faith opened, not just as a one-time event, Although if there's anybody in here who has never looked at your son, has never placed faith in your son, saving faith in your son, I pray that they would do that now. But all of us who are Christians, who would call ourselves Christians, I just pray that you keep our eyes fixed. As Paul prays in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to know the unthinkable inheritance that we have in your glorious son. And I pray that that will be how we live every single day until you call us home and all of our faith is turned to sight. And we will be with him and we will see his face. We pray that in his wonderful name. Amen.